0: Let's, uh, let's dive into the text. You can go and open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, oh, Greg, you got a beauty. It's normally just one good-looking man, and now here comes two. My gosh. Look at those men. Women, turn the other way. I don't want you to stumble. But if you need a Bible, they've got, they'll hand you a Bible. Uh, we use our Bibles around here. We believe that the Bible is God's Word, that it's fully inspired by Him. And so we teach it like we believe it. And so anyways, you can open up your Bible to First Corinthians. But here's where we've been going. And, and forgive me, I'm going to be sitting down. Um, I found last night, if I sat down, it kind of helps my back a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm getting old. That's all. the only thing I'll say. So. But um, over the last couple of weeks, what I've tried to do is I've tried to lay out this idea and kind of place it in front of you that at the core of humanity, the reality that all of us face in some way, in some form, whether we mean to or we don't, we miss the point. All of us do. And in fact, one of the things that I've tried to help us understand that I'm going to continue to try to help us understand is that if you're sitting there right now and you don't think you miss the point, you're missing the point. Every single one of us in here in some way are missing the point. We see where others miss the point well, don't we? We are so good at that. And we think, oh, if that idiot was just as smart as I am. Missing the fact that in your life other people are looking at you going, oh, if that idiot could just see that that aspect of their life. And so Paul's writing a a letter to this church in Corinth, informing them and trying to help them understand, hey, there's some key areas where you as a church, you've missed the point. And he addresses just certain key issues along the way to help them understand that. But the thing that is so beautiful about the book of 1 Corinthians, it's the reason I love to teach it, it's the reason I love to teach the Bible, is the answer to missing the point is always one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He's the point. And Paul's not afraid to bring that in. And with every answer that he gives, he wants them to understand that Jesus is the point. And while we, by our kind of genetic makeup, who we are after the fall of Adam and Eve, while we tend to miss the point, the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam that comes along and he is the point. See, God didn't leave us in a predicament. I love that about God. In the midst of us missing the point, he didn't leave us there. And for those of us who have missed the point and continue to miss the point, including who I brought up last week, Paul and Sosthenes and the Corinthians and all those who call upon the name of the Lord, one of the beautiful things that he does for those that have missed the point is God calls into our quandary. I use this word call. He calls into this quandary and he rescues us from our own missing the point or sin. I love that. See, the core of it, the solution for God to our problem was not found in overlooking our rebellion, not overlooking us missing the point, not overlooking our sin, but instead the wrath that was owed us, the beauty of what Paul does that he expresses so well is that all of that was placed upon Jesus, the solution to our predicament. And that's good news. See, he died our death, and we received his life. And one of the sad things and the reasons I think we have missed the point is that's become boring to us. Oh, God, help us that's what he's writing into and he says this this grand thing that takes place he says for all of us now that are in Christ Jesus we are in him the father no longer sees us in our rampant sinfulness but he sees us in Christ fully accepted fully loved everything about us he adores us because we are in his son Jesus Christ fully And I wanted all of us to get that. When he talked about call, that's what I wanted us to understand, is that we are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. He doesn't love us as slaves. He loves us as his very own kids. But the thing I also love that I wanted to talk about last week... Is that he called us then out of our pointless lives in which we pursue all these things that don't matter, that in the end leave us hopeless, that leave us wondering what is the point of our lives? And with every last person that he calls, he places a call upon their life and says to us, You are usable, you are purposeful, I adore you, and I'm going to make you into the person that I intend you to be to be used for my kingdom. So if you're in here today thinking, oh, not me, or I'm too sinful, or maybe some of you are thinking I'm too good, and then God's going to give you something else. (laughs) All of you that are in Jesus Christ are people that are purposeful to Him. He adores you. There's absolutely nothing that we have done to deserve this there's never anything that we have ever done that would cause god to to somehow do this to us in ourselves this was totally and fully because god chose to do it man and the obvious question for me that just sneaks into my head different times i don't know if you've ever been there but you just go god why me why god what caused you to look through eternity? That girl hit it so well. What caused you to look through eternity and go, I can't wait for the day that I rescue Todd out of sin and darkness. See, sometimes I think God, we think God isn't excited, like the day he rips us out, he goes, Fine. All right. You know, he pulls us out, and it's like, now sit over there and shut up. I mean, I think that's how we think of it, but God isn't that way, man. He looks forward to it, and he longs it. And it says on the day that we receive Christ, inside of the angelic realm, there's rejoicing over this one person who repents. He loves it. And in the middle of all of it, the amazing answer to why is because he wants to. And he loves to. We're not the last guy sitting there waiting to to get chosen for the football team. You know that one dude when you're choosing teams at recess and all of a sudden there's that one idiot that can't catch, that can't run, that can't throw, that can't do anything, and you go, okay, fine, I'll take him. That's not it at all. God chose us because he wants us. And it was completely undeserved. It was completely unconditional love. He was willful about it. We didn't deserve it. We could never earn it. There's nothing in ourselves. We could never try to pay him back. The way Paul describes this concept all throughout it is this beautiful word that packs everything into one punch. And it's this word called grace. He wants to give and give and give, and he enjoys giving, not because of us, but in spite of us. He just loves us. And what I did last week is, I tried to get our minds to this, is if we're ever gonna get God's eyes, because that's what Paul is saying is, is if we're gonna ever not miss the point, I need the eyes of God, and that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. If we're gonna ever get to this point, is that one of the things we got to see is what we talked about last week, God's call on our life. But this week, one of the things that I really want to hone in on, that we need to see ourselves like God sees ourselves, is this one little powerful word, grace. And I want to just kind of grab it and just squeeze it as much as I can for us to get this idea. Now go with me to 1 Corinthians 1. Let me show you kind of what I'm talking about in this idea of grace. And we're just going to do one word of one verse today. And so some of you are going, cool, we're going to be out in five minutes. And I'll just say, you'll be sadly disappointed if you're thinking that. (laughs) This word grace is too big. Look at verse four. I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because you're so great? Because you're so funny? Because you're so smart? No. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That's why. See, when Paul saw this group of Christians in Corinth through the eyes of God, all he saw was grace. This is important for him. This is huge for him. Because what he saw and what we're going to see again next week was God's unconditional, his never ending, his just, his passionate love for this group of people on display in the lives of the Corinthians. And what it did for Paul is, is it just stirred within him this joyful response of, of gratitude and thankfulness. When he thought about the Corinthians, in spite of all their warts, in spite of all their shortcomings, when he looked at them, he just saw grace. God's unconditional, unmerited, one-way love towards them. That's what he saw. And before he was going to confront them with all these difficult realities, he wanted them to know off the front end, when God looked at them, when he looked at them, when he saw them, first and foremost, what he saw was God's undeserved, one-way love towards them. He saw grace. For Paul, this didn't mean somehow that he didn't have hard things to say to them. Sometimes when we think the word grace, we say, oh, I'm not going to say hard things. Grace never avoids the truth. Grace isn't somehow this divine leniency which we go, oh, don't worry about it. No big deal. But Paul tells the Corinthians the truth, and as he sees them, though, what he sees them first and foremost as the truth lands upon them is grace grace. When Jesus Christ came in John 1, 14, it said he came full of grace and truth. For Paul, this word grace was special. Of all the times that it's used in the New Testament, which is 155 times, which is a lot, Paul uses it 101 times. Man, can you imagine if you were talking to somebody and some people pray like this, you know, they say, you know, Lord and dear Lord and they're saying Lord all the time. Why are they saying it? Well, because the Lord is special, but this word grace just gets used 101 times for Paul, and, and he was grabbing this little word that the church talked about. He could have used other words to describe how, how God gives to us, and at times he does. But the main thing that he's gonna be doing here is that Paul looks at this church, he grabs this little word, this grace idea that speaks of, of God's love, this loaded term of grace, and when he was with them on his missionary journeys, when he was writing letters to them, he just flooded his letters with it because he never wanted them to forget is that inside of everything of who they are, in spite of their inadequacies and their insecurities, grace, grace. He wanted them to get this new, amazing idea that the world had no clue about. So we better define grace. What's grace? Well, one of the ways in which we define it sometimes is the acronym. Is the first way I learned it. G, gods, R, riches, A, at, C, Christ, E, expense. Some of you that like acronyms, maybe you're a military type, there's your definition. And you can walk around and go, G, grace, you know, and you just do whatever you got to do. Some of you are a little bit mentally challenged like me. And so you like a two-word definition, which would just be this idea of God's unmerited favor. Oops, there's three words. I told you I was... Mentally challenged. But one of, I think, the better definitions that I've ever seen was a book that I read this summer by a guy named Paul Zoll. Don't you love that name? What's your name? Todd Zod. I mean, I'm just thinking, what a great name. Can I have your name? But in it, he, he wrote this book. that was, It was called Grace in Practice, A Theology of Everyday Life. And let me just kind of show you the definition he gives of grace. He writes this. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. The cliche definition of grace is unconditional love. It is a true cliche for it is a good description of the thing. Let's go a little further though. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever they might be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves, in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. And here's where he defines it. Grace is one-way love. Not bad. Not bad. Now, some of you might say, dang, dude, I need a merited favor because that's a little too long for me. Some of you might say, oh, I might add this or that to it. And I get it. No definition is ever perfect. But the thing that I really like about that definition, the thing I think that just gripped my heart in such a powerful way is it keeps us focused on the most important aspect of grace is that God is the giver, the total giver. And I'm the receiver, the total receiver. See, at the core of understanding grace, and I think one of the things that we kind of have to get in our head is that we must come to the place that God doesn't need anything. Nothing. Anytime people try to tell God, what do you need? He's like, you kidding me? I own the the cattle on a thousand hills. I call the stars by name. Are you kidding me? What are you going to give to me? But probably the part, I think, in us that we struggle with the most isn't that we kind of like that. We don't like to hear and you contribute nothing. We're like, ooh, there must be something I can do. And so what it does is that it just offends us. It causes us to struggle with grace. I remember when I, before I came to know Jesus Christ, this is what really caused me angst. Is that, no, I must do something. And that's why we need to go to Ephesians 2. Let me show you. Look, go with me to Ephesians 2. And let's just kind of walk through this using this book to help us understand this idea of grace. Now, if you look down in verse 1, once you get to there, in Ephesians 2, one of the things that you're going to be encountered with inside of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's presented to us is that everyone who has ever been born, minus Jesus Christ, has been born with a reality You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Everyone. The great equalizer. Sin means that everyone in some way has offended God, a holy God, and we're deserving of His wrath. Dead meaning that there's nothing you can do about it. If I was doing a funeral right now and I had a dead body there, as much as we screamed and yelled at the body and said, do something, the dead body just lays there. That's why Paul wants us to understand in our, in our grasping of this thing called grace, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Look at verse 12. I love this. See that little phrase in there? We were also not only dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were without hope in the world. We were hopeless. In fact, to just take it to that next level, not only were we hopeless, but when you go back to verse 3, he says this, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If we're ever going to understand grace, we have to understand our depths of depravity. It wasn't just that we were hopeless, it is that we were hopeless from the standpoint that all of us in some way and in some form deserved the wrath of God. But oh, doesn't mankind try to fix our problems? Oh my gosh, man, I was watching the news the other day, I hadn't watched it for a little while, and everyone was, here's the solution to the problem. Yeah, right. Come on. See, the reality of how we try to alleviate our our, our mess that we're in is every time humanity grabs the mess, we make the mess worse. Because inside of humanity is we can't solve our problem, but our biggest problem that we have is it because we are inherent and incessant do-it-ourselfers, aren't we? I'm a do-it-ourselfer, man. If you tell me I can't do work in my house, if I can't fix something, I'm like, oh yeah, watch me go to Lowe's. And then I'm calling you 10 minutes later going, I don't know how to do it. (laughs) I used to think it was just something that was taught until I had children. Man, those little suckers. I went in with my little daughter the other day, and she's like sitting there trying to tie her shoes. She's two years old, and she's just muscling up to her shoes. And I go, oh, baby, you want Daddy to help? And she goes, no, Daddy, no help. Right, right, can do it. Go on with your bad self then. What did she eventually do? Daddy help. (laughs) It's ingrained within us. And so in order for us as these do-it-ourselfers, in order to do things, what we then do is we start to frantically make to-do lists. And we get those to-do lists going, and we fire them up, and we check them off, going, done that, done that, done that. Man, and like the Corinthians, Americans then laud the people that are self-made people. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I'm Steve Jobs. I'm pick whoever it is we look at and go, that's right, that is a self-made man. We're nurtured from a young age that somehow that achievement means approval. If you achieve, you're going to get love, you're going to get acceptance, you're going to get approval, you're going to get acknowledgement. We conclude that in our heads that good people get good stuff and bad people, oh boy, if they get good stuff, we cry unfair, unjust. Bad people get bad stuff, good people get good stuff. And what's so sad is, is then we bring that into our relationship with God. This is our culture's and our world's inborn struggle with Jesus. Is why would a loving God ever rescue bad people? Or the flip side of this, why would a loving God ever send good people to hell? We look at people through our eyes instead of God's eyes, and then we grab a guy like Gandhi. Why do we always grab Gandhi? We kind of put him out there, you know, and we say, Gandhi, that was a good dude. Yeah, he was kind of a funny looking dude, but he was a good dude. And we sit in our there and we look at it and we go, you know, on the to do it list, kind of a scale of life, homeboy, if he hasn't checked off all the boxes, he checked off most of the boxes. And if he hasn't checked off most of the boxes, he's the dude that checked off the most of anybody that we know. Surely God accepts him. In the back of our head, going, if God doesn't accept Gandhi, I'm in trouble. We look at that, and it freaks us out. Surely God would accept him. Surely there's something I can do to make things right with God and my world. His love and acceptance of me, it must be based on somehow these conditions that I meet or, or that I don't meet. It must be something there kind of brings us to our next thing we tend to do. We are nurtured conditional lovers. It's based on conditions. I do this, I get this. A conditional world, the reason we love it, it's so predictable. Don't we? We love conditional world. If you do this, I do this. We love that aspect of it. And not only that, but is it's is it, is it totally predictable, but it keeps us in control. We don't like things to get out of control. And into this world steps an unconditional God. And he does this like a snow globe. He says, I will show you something bigger than conditional. I will show you something bigger than to-do list. I will show you something bigger than seeking engagement in a world that's true. you're trying to get their love from them. I will show you something so different. I will show you a love that's incomprehensible. I will show you a love that's unconditional. I will show you a love that's one way. And he comes in and completely wrestles control out of our hands. He wrestles predictability out of our hands. He wrestles everything out of our hands. And it's frustrating because then... We don't know what to do. We wonder, how could God ever accept me? And this thinking is at the root of every other religion outside of Christianity. Do this. Do this. Do this. Check this box. Here's a to-do list. Here's five pillars for you. Here's the seven things that we need to do. And here's God looking at you going, you can do nothing. Only my son, Jesus Christ. Is there a side that hears that and just goes, oh. "Amen." <laughs> Man, it's amazing in light of humanity's history. I was thinking about this the other day. That we can come to the conclusion that we're pretty good people, and look at our history. How in the world do we ever come to the point where we honestly think that we are pretty good people? And into this comes scripture, in which Paul in Romans 3:10 says, "No every last one of you you're sinful from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes. There is no one good. There's no one righteous." There is no one who pursues after God. He just—he lays out every last one of them. Every person is alienated from God. Every person is therefore objects of God's wrath. Every person the Bible calls actually in Romans five an enemy of God. And I I think that what should be inside of our heads—the question that we should actually ask—if you want to be honest—is why do good things happen to anybody? We're asking the wrong questions. Why doesn't God just destroy the world? And what's so beautiful about this is in our desperation, we face, I think, a true statement that requires much more than a to-do list or much more than a conditional God. And and go back with me to Ephesians 2. Let me show you this. I love this. Verse 4. But God. I love that. Our whole world may operate on conditionality. Or our whole world may operate on to-do lists. Our whole world may operate in some way, but our God doesn't. Our God, look at this, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Romans 5, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and made us alive together with Christ. And here's our word, by grace you have been saved. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. You can't do anything. It's an absolute free gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. In the end, the only thing left to be done is to look at this holy God and just say it was all. It was all you. On some levels, we don't like that, but it's because no I need recognition. Come on. I did something, and God looks at us and says, nothing, but I still love you. In spite of you doing nothing, I adore you. That's powerful. Like I said before, grace isn't radical leniency. It's not us looking at somebody and saying, don't worry about it. You know, no harm, no foul. I'll just give you a little grace. God doesn't look the other way in sin because that would make him completely unjust. Instead, his one-way love was poured out on his son instead. That's why Paul could say in Romans 3.26 that now God could be just and the justifier of the one now who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness, not yours. And if you think about it, the Bible is this record, this recording of undeserving people receiving blessing they didn't earn. Our only solution came in the form of Jesus Christ. He earned it for us. Grace is one way love, that the best way I can explain it, that, that seeks you out when you have nothing to give, nothing lovable about you. The moralist, the one who he thinks he does all the right things is just as desperate as the immoralist, the one who is smoking crack and prostituting himself and, and you know, whatever else else might be doing. Each of those people, every last person is just as desperate upon Jesus Christ. And nothing is more counterintuitive, nothing is more difficult for the human mind to wrap itself around when we look at this idea of what it means to follow Jesus than this idea that God gives us grace. It's too big. It's so contrary to everything that we know about life. And this is what made Paul so Thankful in regards to the Corinthians. He looked at them and just saw grace. Let me tell you something. When I look out over this church right now, those of you that know Jesus, I know everybody always thinks I don't go to the perfect church. You go to the perfect church, not because we're perfect, but because Jesus is perfect. Grace. Grace. Now make sure you don't miss something here. Go back to Ephesians 2. Some of you probably wondered, why'd you leave out verse 6? Don't worry. And God, He, raised us up with Him, Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now stop. That is past tense. He's not talking about the future. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are already with him, seated with him, fully in him. It's not something that we're waiting for one day. Why did he do it? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, uh uh-oh, here's our word, of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, His grace, is one-way love, wrap your mind around this, is never, ever, ever going to stop. Ever. He's just going to keep loving us immeasurably over and over. I mean, if you could imagine, if I came in today and I found one of you and I, I handed you a million dollars, now the first time you'd be like, dang, boy. And then I came to you next day and I said, here's another million. And the next day, and the day after that, finally you look at me and go, seriously, dude, I, I can pay off the country's debt. I don't know, like, what do I do with this? And after a while, you know what it starts to do to you? It just humbles you. But here comes God's grace at us. It just never stops. It's like trying to stand in a raging river and hold yourself against it because it just continually flows at you. And what he's saying is, is that it's going to flow at us for eternity. It's never going to stop. And in some ways, we go, okay, I can wrap my mind around that grace, but let me tell you something. Do you understand that today God's grace is going to never stop coming at you, and tomorrow His grace is never going to stop coming at you, and the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that? It's not just a past reality. It's not just a future reality. It is a reality right now. And I really think that it kind of in our current battle to um, to believe in Jesus Christ, if I don't believe in his grace today and the next day and the day after that, that's why I struggle with sin. Because it demands faith. It demands a belief that I can forego my sin because God has something better for me. I can forgo yelling at my kids because God has something better for me. I can forgo being an idiot to my wife because God has something better for me. I don't have to look at porn because God has something better for me. I don't have to do all the dumb things we do. Why? Because His grace reminds us that I have something better for you than this world has to offer. And I have to believe that. Now, some of you would say amen to everything I said. You would tell me, that's right, Todd. That's right. Salvation is by God's grace alone, in faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You would just sit there and amen me to no end in past grace. You would amen me in future grace. But when you go to walk with Jesus Christ, there's this weird pull amongst us to go back to the way we were before. You came to Christ without checklists, but now somehow you're going to walk with Christ abiding by checklists. You, you came, grace reached out into your desperation and pulled you out of sin as one alienated from God, but now you're going to slip back into our world's understanding of acceptance and love. Why? Because there's this weird pull that we always have back into the safe predictability of how our world does things. Let me give you an illustration. One of my favorite movies of all time is Saving Private Ryan. Great movie. And I sit in that movie and suddenly I'm like... <sighs> Proud to be an American? I mean, I'm just like, that's right. That's who we are. But I think that one of the most powerful scenes inside of this movie that I've ever watched is Tom Hanks, who's, who plays Captain Miller, and he's sent to, to save Private Ryan, hence the name, who's played by Matt Damon. And all of these guys go to get him, and as they, they get out there, one by one, a lot of his men start to die, and in the scene that I'm, I'm talking about, suddenly Tom Hanks is dying, And he looks across at Matt Damon, at Private Ryan and he's trying to say something to him but he can't get it out and he pulls him close and then he says twice to him, he says, earn this. Earn this. Earn what these men did for you. Earn what my life did for you. Earn this. And you fast forward to the very end of the movie. And there you have Private Ryan now as an old man. He's standing in front of the grave of of Captain Miller, of Tom Hanks, and he looks down at the tombstone, and he's, he's kind of interacting with him, and you can tell in the back of his head, he's asking the question, did I earn this? Did I earn it? As he's standing there, suddenly his wife kind of approaches. She can tell that he's just broken up inside. And after a small amount of time, he looks at her in tears, and he asks this question, Am I a good person? Have I lived a good life? In other words, have I earned it? Now listen to me. That might be a powerful scene in a movie but it speaks to our problem as human beings. On Good Friday, when we come together and we worship Jesus and we remember the amazing one-way love that he, He literally poured out from the cross, our tendency, if we're not careful, is to imagine Christ hanging from the cross, not saying it is finished, but looking at us and going, earn this. Earn this. That is not what jesus said and what starts to happen is is that when i start to grapple with that and i start to kind of think that somehow that that's what jesus was calling me to in some way in some form that i'm supposed to earn this is that it'll cause us to do exactly what this 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 character that's played by the saving private ryan does did i actually do it am i acceptable god am i worth it Have I done it, missing the fact that Jesus Christ did not save us to earn this? He saved us in spite of us, and He loves us unconditionally. There is nothing to earn. And let me tell you something. That's the contrast between love and guilt and shame. One motivates out of shame. If you don't do this, then you're a failure. The other one just says, regardless of what you do, I Love you. That's powerful. See, this worldly type of thinking, and if you remember right, I, I asked you the question in the last two weeks: is Simi Valley changing you, or are you changing Simi Valley? Our culture says you gotta earn this, you you have to do something to get what you have. And we look back at them and say, no, when it comes to God, He is counterintuitive, His one-way love for us is never, ever, ever conditional. I see Christians this way and I've been this person and we just kind of get gloomily introspective wondering if we're doing things that will cause God to to love us more or accept us more all the while we're missing the fact that in Christ we are fully accepted period our sin our disobedience while it might break God's heart and this is key it does not hinder him in the least from accomplishing anything through us And the purpose of God's ongoing grace, His one-way love, is not to free you to go crazy in your sin, but here's the key about it. He does it, His grace, so that we will draw near Him, and as we draw near Him, He changes us. You are just as desperate today for Jesus as the first day you came to know Him. Whether you think it or not, Go with me to Hebrews 10. Let me kind of show you what I'm talking about. Keep your finger. Actually, we're done with Ephesians. Take your finger out. (laughs) Hebrews 10. Let Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look what he does in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence verse 19 to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a high priest over the house of god verse 22 what are we supposed to do draw near go to him see the problem with the way we tend to deal with is shame shame drives us away from god grace beckons us to him Go with me to chapter 4 in Hebrews. Let me show you again. We kind of explore this idea of what it means now to go to Him. And I love what He does here. If you haven't memorized this verse, memorize it. 14. 414. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us now hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But watch this. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, what are we supposed to do? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of, uh uh-oh, there's our word, grace, that we may receive mercy and find, uh uh-oh, there it is again, grace to help in the time of need. Go with me to chapter 13. I'll really nail this point home. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. So don't be led away to diverse and strange teaching, for it's good for the heart to be, oh, there's our word, strengthened by grace. If you want to help somebody being impacted by cults, man, strengthen them with grace. And then he says this statement, not by foods. In other words, don't do to-do lists. Don't do all the things that we tend to do to somehow think that, that God's going to accept us. Verse 10. Man, are you kidding me? We have an altar which those who serve the ten have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. So therefore, let us go to who? Him. And in case you missed the point, look at chapter 7. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment, a to-do list, the things that we're supposed to do, and the law was placed in front of us not to empower us, but to expose us as the weak, weak people that we are, our desperation for God Out of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we do what? Draw near to God. Your job this week is to just draw near to God. Quit trying to change yourself. You're not Oprah. You're not Dr. Phil. You need something so much bigger than that. You need the King of the universe, Jesus Christ. Draw near. Laws and rules and regulations and to-do lists and boundaries and barriers, yeah, they create an appearance in which we're somehow, that we look like we have changed lives with Paul in Colossians at the very end of chapter 2 and he just says this statement, they have no power in curbing the power and the desires of the flesh, zero. The only power that we have is this nearness that God gives us access to and that is what changes us. This was at the heart of the problem when Paul was writing to the Galatians, man. God's one-way love had gripped them, but then in their head, they'd slipped back into this dangerously skewed view of God's acceptance of them. And they said, yes, sure, we can come to Jesus by God's grace, but what that means afterwards is is that now we're supposed to to pursue Christ via law and rules and to-do lists. Man, are you kidding me? And this may be counterintuitive, and some of you may cry foul when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyways because it's true. God loves and accepts you just as much in your sin as in your obedience. Some of you are like, seriously? And the reason you said it is because you don't get grace. His love is is unconditional, never-ceasing, always coming at us. I'm sure some of you are saying, hey, hold on, Todd. Time out, cowboy. Let's not take this too far. Let's be more balanced. But let me tell you something, I can't. There is no safe and balanced version of grace, man. When Jesus came in, he came into the then-known world, and he grabbed the world like a snow globe and went, yeah, 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 And everybody went, and the Pharisees tried to kill him. Other people rejected him. Why? Because he came in with grace and truth. And I think one of the biggest lies that Satan propagates on the church is to believe that somehow we need to tone grace down. Grace, however, refuses to play it safe. Grace is all in. Man, if grace played golf, it would refuse to lay it up. Grace is dangerous on one level. It seems extreme. It seems unbalanced. But you know what? That is what unconditional love looks like. But Todd, but Todd, wait a second, man. If you start talking like that, people are going to go crazy and sin. Careful, Todd. And I would just say this to you. If grace wants, if your idea of grace makes you want to sin more, you don't understand Grace. day i stood at the altar with my wife i looked across at her i agreed even though i didn't understand it and obviously she didn't understand it because she said yes (laughs) i agreed to love her unconditionally now, when I'm sitting there in this unconditional love, I wasn't looking at her going, hey, baby, guess what? That means, man, if you go you know, play the horror and, and you go off and have an adulterous relationship, that's totally cool. I wasn't even thinking that. I wasn't even on my radar. I loved her unconditionally because that's how intimate relationships are built. Unconditional love is mind-blowing and it's world-wrecking in its nature. And this grace that approaches us has no butt tods. It just sits there and says, regardless of what you do, I love you. And I think some of you in here, man, you see God as like this father that's standing over us, sternly telling us we're a bunch of idiots. Arms crossed, frustrated with us. Go with me to James 4, and I'll kind of finish up with just a couple verses here. James 4. Look at verse 4. Some of you are going to like this first part. Verse 4 you adulterous people. That's right. There's God, arms crossed, frustrated with you. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God makes himself an enemy of the world. Are you not supposed that the scripture said he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? Uh Uh-oh, here's our word. But he gives more grace. He just keeps giving grace. Go with me to 1 Peter 5. Just a couple pages over. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, you be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So what? At the proper time he may exalt you. And how do I humble myself? Casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Why? Because he cares for you. God doesn't have a no face. He has a yes face. But Todd, how am I going to deal with my sin? I'm glad you asked. Go with me to Titus 1 or Titus 2. Todd, if you'd start doing this, if I start pulling back on my to-do list and my rules and my regulations, what's going to happen to me? Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And what's grace going to do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. If you want to battle against sin, grace. 1 Corinthians 15, But Todd, if if I don't have my to-do list, and if if I'm not working hard and and trying to please God, then what am I going to do? Paul gives us an answer. 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 9. He says this about himself. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And here's our statement. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, uh uh-oh, I work harder than any of them. Why does he work harder? Grace. Why does he flee from sin? Grace. Why is he the man that he is? Grace. We have to come to grips with this idea of grace. And for all of us, we freak out about it. We don't know what to do with it. But let me tell you something. Paul had this amazing thing. He came to God in 2 Corinthians 12, and he said, God, would you please remove this thorn in the flesh? Would you just please remove it? I'm freaking out. I'm I'm concerned. I don't know what to do with myself. And all of a sudden, Christ speaks into his life and says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is Paul to do? Grace. So here's your application point for the week. Are you ready? I'm going to say it. Here it is. Enjoy God. Draw near to God. For some of you, you haven't done that for a while. And if you need to in repentance, come to Him understanding that the grace of God opens the path for you. And if you need prayer today, looking at me going, I haven't spent time with God, really. I haven't drawn near to him for years. Come ask for prayer. Maybe some of you are unbelievers, and you've never once come to him and said, God, I am desperate for you. We'd love to talk with you and explain to you how you can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you have been rejecting obedience from the standpoint of of being baptized. And I would say to you, grace. But this week, just draw near. Draw near. Amen? Jesus, would you please, through the power of your spirit today, enliven us via grace. God, would you help us to all start shutting off our worry motors and our anxiety motors and our trying to appease people motors and our trying to find acceptance and love and all these other things that we tend to do. God, would you shut off inside of men and women our worry motor around work and our worry motor around paying the bills and our worry motor and all kinds of other aspects of it. Father, instead of worry, instead of all the things we do, God, would you through the power of your spirit this week draw us to the throne of grace? Would you strengthen us through the, gro- the throne of grace? Would you comfort us through the gro- throne of grace? Would you, would you give us a new sense of hope because of the throne of grace? God, forgive us for this group of people of trying to be fix-it-uppers. God, we can't fix anything. We are desperate for your grace. Would you do that work in our lives in your precious name, amen.